Today's scripture reading is 1 Timothy 6:17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to seek their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the word of God with you this morning. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I was recently out at a city festival uh, in downtown Oconomowoc. If you know Wisconsin that runs right through town there, there's that green space that they've kind of built up over the last few years. And as we were, um, as we were standing at the intersection there, if you've been at those set of stoplights in downtown of Oconomowoc, one thing you know is that the, when there's a lot of people trying to get through there, those, uh, those walk signs rarely turn on. Right? It seems like you're waiting there for an incredibly long period of time. And I realize this is very local humor, but I'm, I, if, if you've been there, you know what it's like to wait at that intersection. And we were waiting to cross the street to go to the other side, and there was a woman standing there who was hitting that crosswalk button like it was her job. I mean, just pounding on this thing for what felt like minutes. And as I was watching her hit this button in hopes of speeding the process along, I was reminded of an article that I read a couple of years ago on what are called placebo buttons. Now, some of you are going to be familiar with this, and for some of you, it'll be new, but the whole idea is that whether or not you are aware of it, we frequently come in contact and interact with buttons that, that aren't actually operational and don't actually do anything. And if you don't believe me, you can Google this, you can look it up on your own. It's fascinating to read about the psychology behind all this, but there's several primary examples. The one that I just mentioned, the crosswalk buttons are one of them. And the whole idea is this. What a lot of times when these intersections were originally built, the city planners designed crosswalk buttons so that when there were pedestrians who needed to cross, they could hit that button and after a certain amount of time, the sign would flip over so that they would know that they're able to cross. But what they realized is as, those, as time went on and, and all of those intersections became computerized and set on timers and cameras and sensors and all of those kinds of things, they didn't have as much use for those crosswalk buttons, but they left them anyway. And in fact, they built whole new intersections with crosswalk buttons that were not operational at all because they discovered that humanity is wired in such a way where if you hit that button, it does something to calm you down when you're actually looking to cross the street. It's just kind of one of those interesting things of the way that the human brain works. It's the same idea that happens in elevators where there's a whole bunch of elevators that are designed with closed buttons that don't actually close the door. But when you're waiting to go and you're waiting to, to go to the next floor or whatever else, you want to hit that button because it at least lets you feel like you're doing something in the process. And maybe the other classic example is thermostats in hotel rooms where we have been given thermostats, this sounds like a joke, but it's real, where we've been given thermostats that presumably control the temperature of the room, except that they actually don't. That those temperatures are preset and assigned, unless you know how to hack them, which is something else I found out interesting this week. You can actually hack those, so Google that on your own time. It'll be helpful <laughs> on your next vacation. I know what I'm doing. But the question is, of course, why in the world do these things actually exist if they don't do anything? 
Well, they give us a feeling of control and security, even though someone or something else is actually calling the shots. And I think that notion helps illustrate the temptation that we all have in our lives. We live in a world of uncertainty, and we love to pretend that we don't. We love to pretend that the world is predictable, that we can see things coming, that we know what's going to happen, and whether it's in an economic situation or a political situation or just the everyday uh, processing of our lives, we presume that somehow we are able to know what's coming next. Our everyday comfort and security rests in a human sense, not in a spiritual reality God sense, but in a human sense. Our everyday comfort and security rests on a series of dependencies over which we have little to no control. Have you ever thought about that? It's a scary idea when you actually begin to play it out. If we didn't believe in a God, it would be horrifying. And nowhere is the idea more on display than in our finances. The implicit question of this text for us this morning is this, where does your security actually rest? As we discussed a few weeks ago, God himself is the source of our provision, and he can choose any means that he wants to provide the needs of his children. So in the seasons of life where God may choose to bless with financial abundance, how are Christians to respond? In the seasons of life in which we experience financial abundance, how are we to respond? And that's the question that Paul is going to address in this text. Beginning in the first portion of verse 17, he starts by saying this, as for the rich in this present age, and I just want to stop there really quickly and talk about something, because it might seem to you, as it perhaps did to me even this week, like overkill for Paul to be addressing once again the topic of wealth when he had just addressed it a few verses earlier. But what you'll notice in this portion is that his motivation and drive in addressing it is actually very different than how he addressed it previously. Earlier, he was telling people, specifically these false teachers, that they were not to love or pursue wealth for the sake of wealth. That the purpose and the motivation and the drive of your life cannot be a love of money. It cannot be a love or a desire for wealth, for the purpose of wealth. And here, he's giving instruction on those who have wealth, uh, on those who already have wealth, should actually act. So scholars speculate as we come to this portion of Scripture that this church was likely overrepresented with those who had money. And undoubtedly, there were some within that congregation who had made their money the old-fashioned way. Maybe they were running a business. Maybe they had worked incredibly hard. Maybe they inherited money from family. But certainly, almost certainly at least, there were some within that congregation who had made their money by ill-gotten means. They had taken advantage of people and used people and used situations. They had gained money in an inappropriate way. But regardless of how these people had gotten their money, the question now for them was this. Now that they know Christ, how should they think about it? And you see something even in the grammar of this text. If you look back at verse 11, you can see the parallel that, that, that Paul is drawing. And he says this in verse 11. As for you, Timothy, man of God... And now he's addressing this other group of people, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, and the instruction that he's going to give both people, both the church members who had wealth and Timothy himself, were the same, that you are to live, work for, and pursue those things which are eternal. 
those things that have eternal value, meaning beyond this life. So Paul first gives them a caution and then a command. Look what he says in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So some Bibles translate that word charge as the word urge, which is perhaps a better translation for the way that our brains interpret that idea. He's saying this is different, Timothy, than how you are going to address the false teachers. You're not calling them out for their sin. You're not calling them out for for their desires or their motivations. What he's saying is this, you need to urge, charge, press on those within the congregation whom you love and whom you know love Jesus and encourage them to live differently by virtue of the fact that they know and love Jesus Christ. He's speaking here to those who are believers and there's a sense of, there's a sense of gentleness and there's a sense of gentle pressing that Paul wants Timothy to do in their lives. As one theologian points out, rich is a rather subjective idea. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We won't go into it in depth, but when we think about that word rich, we typically think about it within our own context. We view ourselves as the standard and anybody who has more money than us as rich, which is by definition subjective. It's presuming that the wealth we determine as being necessary versus that which is extravagant is a determination made solely on our own. But the Bible has different categories for how to view money. The Bible addresses first those who are impoverished, those who have absolutely nothing, no home, no extra clothes. They're struggling to know if they're going to even be able to have a meal And there is a massive portion of the population of this world that lives in that kind of fear. The second category the Bible gives is those who have enough, those who are experiencing sufficiency. And the way that the Bible is going to define that, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is that idea of having food, clothes, and shelter. That the necessities, the basics of life have been provided for you. And everybody else, the Bible describes as being rich. When you think of it in those terms, you realize that in a a very real sense, our lifestyles, at least most of us, if not all of us, are truly extravagant. There's an opulence in the way that we live. And most of us fall into that last category. The caution that Paul is going to extend to the wealthy members of this church, and by extension, to all of us, is to avoid arrogance. And what does it mean when he says, I I want you to urge them not to be haughty? He's saying, I want you to resist the temptation to look down on those who have not accomplished or gained as much as others. And money has a unique ability to take a person and make them arrogant. It's a reason why money is addressed as significantly as it is all through Scripture. It's a reason why, once again, it comes up in this letter from Paul to Timothy, because it is such a a substantive issue in the life of all people, but particularly in the life of the believers. It's such a reflection of what it is that we value and who it is that we claim to be that Paul says we need to understand how it is that we're to view money. And money has an ability to make you arrogant. 
So I was thinking about it this week and trying to figure out how to explain it, and here's the idea that came to mind for me. I I don't know if this temptation is more pronounced in the United States than it has been historically, but certainly it's possible that it plays out in a more dramatic way. So I'm neither an economist nor a historian, but here's what I mean by that. There is no other time or place in the world that has provided more opportunity for more people to make more money in a smaller period of time than the last 70 years in the United States. Now again, I'm not an economist or a historian, but I think I'd be willing to stand by that claim. Think about that. Since the closing of World War II, the opportunities for massive numbers of Americans to make massive amounts of money by comparison to the standard of the rest of the world in a very short period of time is unrivaled. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, from the universal ability to start a business, to meet gaps in the market, to advancements in production and technology, to leaps in communication and transportation. We live in a time of unparalleled growth and opportunity. And on top of that, as if all of that is not enough, we have a culture that still, by and large, values the achievements of hardworking, entrepreneurial, self-motivated individuals. The American ideals of individualism and and being a people who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps is still very much alive. And all kinds of people have benefited massively from such a structure. Then you start comparing ourselves to the rest of Western Europe in particular, where we don't have royal titles, where old money is not considered to be more impressive than new money compare ourselves, for instance, to the caste system of India that favors family status. No, in America, none of that matters, at least not to the extent that it does in other places. What we have instead is money and influence. And all of that leads people to find their worth in their finances. It's the air we breathe that is so much a part of the cultural stew that is the United States that we don't even consider or think about. And and don't hear me wrong, because what you're going to find out from Paul is he's not inherently condemning wealth. When God gives wealth, there is opportunity for wealth to be used. But what he's saying is there is an inherent warning that needs to come along with that. But to the extent that we've been financially blessed, we need to be very self-aware of the temptations that are going to ride along with that wealth. Temptations towards arrogance and haughtiness and looking down on others who do not have what we have. Temptations of self-indulgence and self-reliance, as he's about to talk talk about rather in a moment. But Paul says you need to avoid that outlook. And the question is, well, why? If I've accomplished something... And if my presumption is that anybody who's hardworking and has the same motivation is able to accomplish the same thing, then why in the world don't I get to look down on them? And the answer that Paul is going to give at the end of verse 17 is to say this, because to glory in one's wealth is to miss the point that God is the one who provides richly. We presume that there's a level of neutrality in which we live and that by virtue of our own accomplishments alone, we achieve. We remove God from the equation and therefore give ourselves permission to look down on other people. 
But notice that Paul doesn't end there. He then says this in the second half of verse 17. He says, not only should they not have haughty, arrogant attitudes, but they also ought not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And that language is fascinating. The uncertainty of riches. Once again, it's something that we know to be true, but we just typically don't think about. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned Matthew chapter 6, particularly verse 26, where Jesus is speaking, and he tells to those who are anxious in their souls, overridden with concern about their future and where their next meal is coming from and where their provision lies, he says to them, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And Jesus mentions all of this within the broader context of anxiety. He's saying that those who are trying to amass wealth as a means of security often find themselves in the position of anxiety at the thought of losing what they have. Think about that for a moment. There is a unique temptation towards anxiety and fear that actually comes along with the pseudo-security of finances. And to illustrate that, Jesus is saying all you have to do is look at the birds who don't worry about the future and they're not planting in hopes of reaping eventually and they're not working a job for the sake of future investments and they don't have retirement plans or any of those things and yet they are absolutely confident in their lives and the limited understanding of their bird brains because they have a God who is providing for them. In other words, the poor in some sense may have a distinct advantage and that they will never be tempted to place their security in what they have never had. So for those of us wealthy by historical or universal standards, the temptation that lies in front of us, Paul is going to say, is that we are going to presume that what is there will always be there. So people rest in the consistency offered by their employers, presuming that by virtue of their company's longevity or holdings, they have job security. People presume that the demands of the market, to some extent or another, will always stay the same and therefore ensure their livable wage. People rest in their savings and their investments, presuming that historical trends will continue and that markets will continue to perform as they have, at least within a reasonable margin. People rest in their experience and their education and their skill set and their resume, presuming that regardless of what happens economically, they'll be a desirable employee. And listen, for most of us historically, that has been the case. But what happens if for reasons beyond your control or influence, your employer is suddenly bought out or decides to downsize? What happens if the markets were to have an unprecedented downturn as has happened in our country? Or here's the big one. What happens if your very ability to work is removed? or something happens physically or mentally to put you in a position where you are no longer able to provide for yourself. See, as moments in our own history prove, wealth is fleeting. And what we presume is safe and secure can dissipate in an instant. 
Now, all of this to this point is likely not very surprising to us. It's probably all stuff we've heard, at least to some extent or another, particularly in light of what we addressed a couple of weeks ago. But what is, what is surprising is what comes next. Because as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, people's tendency when the conversation of wealth and money comes up is to view it through an evil lens. They assign, they assign ill intent and bad motivation and and all kinds of attitudes to people who have money that may not be fair. And so the tendency of some within the Christian worldview is to look at money as an inherent evil, which the Bible is clear to define as not being inherently evil, but, but that's what makes what comes next so surprising. Where then ought they place their hope? The end of verse 17. But charge them to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything, what? To enjoy. And see first that it is God himself who is the provider. In other words, we are to trust in God, the giver of good gifts, and not in the gifts themselves. And that is where most of us get turned around. We look at money or we look at the different things that God has granted us. We look at the ways that he's been generous to us. We look at the things that we have in our life that we enjoy. We look to all of these good gifts, truly good things. But after a while, we begin to set our hope or our expectancy on them. And let me just give you an example of that. If you've ever been in a position where money was tight and where you found yourself praying and going, God, I need you to help me make ends meet. I need you to provide a way. I need a raise. I need a different job. I need a second job. I need some sort of help in order to continue to move forward. And somehow or another, you received that help. How long was it from the time you received it with a thankful heart to the time where you began to expect it? Where your heart moved from gratitude for what God has provided and given to a sense of expectancy that that is what you always deserve. Well, here's how the Bible is going to speak to that idea in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Here's what the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now notice what God doesn't say in that. He doesn't say that might or wealth or intelligence are are bad things. He doesn't denigrate those good gifts that he gives. But what he says is, since I am the grantor of intelligence and strength and wealth, you need to delight in me, not the gift. None of those things can handle being the object of your hope. They were not designed for it. They weren't constructed for it. And so when you try to build your worth or your value or your personhood on your might or on your intelligence or on your wealth, inevitably it is going to crumble. And maybe you'll still have money in the bank and maybe you'll still have your physical ability and maybe you'll still have your intelligence, but you will not have the satisfaction that God intended you to have because you put your hope in something that is created rather than the creator. It's Romans 1 in the life of a believer. What God, while 
what God offers, that money, that wealth, that intelligence, as the gift that he gives us, the reason that our hope can only rely in him is because of his steadfastness. Notice what Jeremiah 9 says. He's given the words of the Lord, and he says, it's my love, my justice, my faithfulness that is steadfast, that does not move, that does not change. Now, that doesn't mean that the gifts are to be rejected. No, on the contrary, God provides good gifts for your enjoyment. So here's how we find it played out later in the Old Testament, or rather earlier in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 14, this is the law that's given to the people of Israel. It's instruction for them in their worship of God, the way that they're to view their money, and listen to the language as it's laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. You shall tie, that is to give of your own personal wealth, whether that's food or money or whatever it is, those first fruits, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, then you shall turn it into money. Listen and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household." You see in this Old Testament law of God the essence of what is being commanded in Timothy, that when you begin to understand that everything you have, all of your provision is from God, it creates in your heart a gratitude to God, an expression of generosity on behalf of God to others, and an enjoyment of the good gifts that he's given. What Deuteronomy 14 and 1 Timothy 6 are both communicating is this. We are to appreciate God's generosity, and we are to imitate God's generosity. So here's the practical question. When you, when you sit down and you eat a good meal, and I mean a good meal, you know what I'm talking about something better than Taco Bell. Not to slam Taco Bell, nobody loves Taco Bell more than I do but I'm talking about a good meal. Or when you drink a good glass of wine or you get to see the beauty of the sunset or you wake up as I did this morning and you drink your coffee looking out the window and watching what looks like a snow globe around you. It's early enough in the season that we can still enjoy it. Right? When you participate in those things, here's, here's the question of whether or not you recognize and understand gratitude and God's generosity? Does it stir up your affections for God? Do you find yourself in that moment in a, in a place of wonder, saying, God, how could you be so good and so generous to give us this to get my coffee beans all the way from Columbia into my house? to drop snow on red and orange leaves still on the trees, to provide good, healthy, delicious food. 
does it drive you to thankfulness and remembrance? Or are we so focused on indulgence that all we're able to think about is the next experience that will give us pleasure? And those are two very different mindsets. One is pleasure for the sake of pleasure. And one is pleasure for the sake of recognizing the good and generous hand of God in our lives. So Paul says the rich are not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. They're intended to enjoy the good generosity of God. And finally, they're intended to imitate the generosity of God. Verse 18, he's saying, Timothy, here's what you've got to tell them. You have to urge them. You have to press on them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And here's what he's saying, both to the original audience in Ephesus and to you and I as well. God has given you riches in order that you might be rich in good works. Do you see the connection? Wealth for the life of the believer never ends with the sake of wealth. You are not made rich for the purpose of being rich. God has not given you good things for those good things to terminate on themselves. No, he's given you a charge and a responsibility. He's given you a purpose and a meaning and an intention in those good gifts for his own glory. But when we believe foolishly and errantly that our money and our possessions and our material goods are ours, that we are our own providers and our own masters, we will cling to it rather than be charitable with it. We will grasp it rather than be generous with it. And in a cruel twist, the tighter we grip our money, the tighter it will grip us. But since we know, brother and sister, that our provision is from God, the other side of that coin is that God may very well intend you to be the means of his provision in the life of someone else. I want to repeat that the other side of recognizing that everything belongs to God already and that everything we have is granted to us by him and for him is that God may very well intend you to be the means of his provision in the life of someone else. So let me just ask it this way. When you hear someone share a need, what is your response? When you hear about someone's financial situation, a struggle or difficulty that they're having, having, what is your response? And have you ever considered, have you ever stopped for a moment to consider whether God has put you in their path to see and meet that need yourself? And just to be clear so that we understand each other, I'm not talking about operating out of guilt or obligation. I'm not talking about seeing the world as a charity case. I'm not talking about begrudgingly handing over money so that you can feel a little better about yourself. What I'm talking about is that moment by moment, you are exercising the muscles of being open to the leading of the Spirit in your life to respond to His pressing on your heart. 
It's the way we saw Jesus operate in his earthly life and ministry. You find this if you want to read it on your own. John chapter 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 12. In each of those chapters, what you find is Jesus saying something like this. The words I say are not my own words. They're the words my Father has given me. And the ministry that I'm doing is not my own ministry. It is the ministry that the Father has provided for me. And the works and the miracles and the things that I do are not my own things, but they're the things that I do because the Spirit of God has led me to do those things. Which means that Jesus wasn't constantly just looking for projects or miracles to perform. But rather, he was attentive and in tune with what the Father would have him do. So the question is, do you look to be that attentive and that in tune with what God brings across your path? Have you developed an ear for the voice of the Father? And understand, by by the way, that that ear is not developed in the moment. It is developed through the day-in, day-out time of silence and solitude, prayer and scripture reading that you spend with God. It's how you learn his voice. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Do you recognize the voice of God when he speaks in your life? Do you respond to it? Do you know even how to discern what it is that he might be leading you into? Or are you just looking for projects? Are you just operating out of guilt? It's a request that God loves to grant. God, give me wisdom and discernment as to how to respond and how to look for opportunities and how to recognize the opportunities that you are driving into my life. Do you have a voice that can distinguish between your own plans and opinions and the divine direction that he intends for you. See, this was what led the Philippian church to send a financial gift to Paul who was awaiting trial in Philippians chapter 4. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 when he said, as you do to the least of these, you have done to me. It's Peter showing hospitality without grumbling. And notice the result of all of that generosity in the lives of those who were wealthy. Verse 19, the second half of the verse. Why do we do all of this? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The true Zoe. Eternal, meaningful, impactful, real life. That they would stop settling for what this world calls living. That it is not that the one with the most, who dies with the most toys wins. It's not the one who has the, the best savings account or the best retirement account or those who can enter into retirement early for the sake of merely enjoying those pleasures alone but that you may take hold of what is truly life. Paul is saying to the rich person, do you want to know what it's like to truly live? Do you want to actually experience what that is? He's saying then depend on God and by all means enjoy his good gifts and look to be generous. 
It's holistic in its approach. This is the deep spiritual reality behind Jesus' recorded words in Acts chapter 20 where he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think when we hear those words, we think miracle on 34th Street or it's a wonderful life. Like we have a tendency to assign those words to cultural mores and norms more than to the mouth of Jesus. This is the mouth of God himself speaking, saying it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's what's underneath what's underneath the passing feeling that people have when they give a gift or meet someone's needs. And certainly we've all felt that and we've heard people talk about it where they say, man, I just, I gave and it just felt so good to give. It felt so good to do something for somebody else. It made me feel really good about myself. Do you realize that in some sense or another there is a far deeper, more meaningful spiritual reality of life that lies underneath that vapid feeling? that that is what, is what God is after in your life. See, for the Christian, generosity is not just about a good feeling. It is an eternal investment. It's taking a piece of your, per- your, your perceived security here and exchanging it for something of inestimable value. It's a declaration that the God who promises your sufficiency will always make good on that promise. So brother and sister, when we hold on loosely to the material goods that he has granted us, we allow the opportunity for God to use us in ways that we could never imagine. that we would actually be the vessel by which God demonstrates his faithfulness to others. That we would receive with gratitude and enjoy with gusto the good, generous gifts that God has given us. But that those things would never terminate on themselves, but always drive us back to the Lord. And that in doing so, our lives and our actions would begin to point others to the generous provision of Jesus. It's what enabled the early church to be so different from the world around it. Where they weren't just trying to get what they could while they could and as much as they could of it, but it made them a community that was set apart that the realization of God's generosity toward them drove them towards generosity to others. And in doing so, God himself was glorified. It's that divine circle of generosity. It's the promise and the call that he's given us. So brothers and sisters, would we receive today with gratitude the tremendous blessings and gifts that God has given us? not to be ascetics like those in the Ephesian church who were trying to get rid of everything that they had to demonstrate their sincerity, and in doing so were just proving that they didn't understand to begin with where all of that generosity had come from, but in deeply enjoying God's gifts and generously giving to others, God himself might be glorified. Would it be the case in our lives that we see and savor 
that kind of generosity so that it can mark us as well. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your generosity towards us. We thank you, God, that what we do in this life in terms of our material wealth and our finances and accruing things for ourselves does not define who we are by any stretch. That we, God, by any means, universal or historical, have been richly, richly blessed. And God, in that, would you drive us towards radical generosity? To be in a position to so know your voice and hear your call and feel the pressing of the Spirit in our life that we might be in a position to see and meet the needs of those around us. To deeply enjoy the good gifts that you've given and in doing so, to be worshiping you. God, we thank you that you love us so greatly, that you pursued us, that you've given us good gifts, and that you've done all of that so that in and through our lives and our dependency on you and our generosity towards others, people might be driven to their knees in thankfulness and gratitude and appreciation for who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. So God, make much of yourself in our lives today, and it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.